This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, October 21st, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. What makes a whistleblower? Is it taking the heat that often comes with revealing information the government would rather not get out? In the 1990s, the Cato Institute's Patrick Eddington and his wife Robin put themselves at the center of important revelations about Gulf War syndrome, facts the Pentagon and the CIA would have rather remained covered up. He's now a policy analyst at the Cato Institute. We spoke last week. Uh, Matt Taibbi in uh, Rolling Stone writes this piece talking about uh, this latest intelligence uh, whistleblower, the person who wrote this letter uh, and um, has since sort of launched this what's known as Ukraine Gate or just add a gate to whatever the the, the relevant uh, facts are. But he says this person probably isn't a whistleblower. And, and part of the reason uh, that he seems to lay out here is that this whistleblower, uh, whoever he or she is, is we don't know who it is. Uh, and their lives, as far as we know, have not been ruined. And that seems to be sort of a it's a key element of of being a whistleblower is that it you take a lot of heat. So what's wrong with that thought? Well, the the problem with it, of course, is that number one, the law, the whistleblower, uh, the intelligence community whistleblower protection act does not require that your life be destroyed in order for you to actually be considered a whistleblower under the law. And neither does <clears throat> excuse me the existing regulations that that govern how the inspector general of the intelligence community handles these claims. And we also don't know, because this person continues to work in the classified world, just exactly how much heat they may already have in fact taken. You know, if, if this person is, as many have speculated, an expert, if you will, on Eastern Europe, Ukraine, and Russia, there just aren't that many folks really working at CIA or the Defense Intelligence Agency or the State Department's uh, Bureau of Intelligence and Research and the like uh, on these particular issues. So I, I think there are a lot of folks on the inside who probably either already know or who can make a really good and very accurate educated guess about who the person is. So uh, you can carry that title, whistleblower, in uh, most of its meanings or most of the people who use the term whistleblower would apply that uh, to you. Um, you were a an army reservist during Operation Desert Storm in the early 90s, but you were not uh, called up because your day job was at the uh, Central Intelligence Agency. So what were you doing uh, and what did you witness? I spent my time uh, at the agency, primarily at an entity that no longer exists, the National Photographic Interpretation Center. May it rest in peace. It was an organization that was established uh, in the late 1950s and early 1960s uh, at the height of the U-2 aerial surveillance program, but also as we were beginning to bring on board the first generation of uh, spy satellites, the ones that would actually take pictures from space. The whole idea, of course, being that uh, the U-2 an air breather, an aircraft, vulnerable to being shot down by uh, Soviet surface-to-air missiles. Of course, it happened. Francis Gary Powers, among others. And President Eisenhower and the National Security Establishment wanted to come up with a way of actually getting reliable intelligence on Soviet military capabilities without putting American military personnel and pilots at risk. And so this gave us what became known as the Corona Program originally. And that is what really launched the National Photographic Interpretation Center. And it, it really got its uh, 
got its claim to fame during the Cuban Missile Crisis in October 1962 because it was NPIC analyst who initially identified uh, the missile crates in Cuba and reached the conclusion that Soviet SS-4 missiles, probably nuclear-tipped, were now parked literally 90 miles uh, off the shore. So a very, very storied organization. It ultimately got rolled into what is today the National Geospatial and Imagery Analysis Agency. But in 1991, it was still a going concern. It's still a, um, an operational entity. And my responsibility during the war was monitoring Iraqi military deployments and developments, particularly in an early warning concept, uh, con context. I worked at what was probably best described as kind of the CNN headline news equivalent uh, of the imagery analysis world. And so we would do very, very quick turnaround reporting, usually from the time that we got the imagery to the time we actually punched out a cable, less than 20 minutes. So it was very, very, you know, quick turnaround work. Okay. So what raised red flags for you? Interestingly, during the war, um, there was an enormous amount of intelligence that was flowing in about Iraqi chemical weapons. And some of it you know, really was about weapon locations, potential weapon locations in the Kuwait theater of operations, both, you know, in occupied Kuwait proper and also in southeastern Iraq. And then when hostilities actually kicked off in earnest on January 17th, 1991, we began to see primarily through the National Security Agency, but also through some other channels, reports of chemical agent detections or alleged chemical weapons launches and things of this nature. Now, naturally, you know, we were all concerned about you know, whether or not what we were seeing on imagery in terms of potential signatures of chemical agent use or preparations for use was actually matching up with what was happening in, in real time. So I remember, you know, it depended on who was on shift at the time, but if one of these incidents occurred, you know, inevitably we would check either with, with the defense intelligence agents or even try to reach out to Schwarzkopf's headquarters in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, and just ask the very simple question, hey, what's going on here? Was this real? And we were told every time, every time, false alarm, don't worry about it. So you fast forward about three years, and by this point, a number of Desert Storm veterans all across the country were coming forward with reports that was initially described in the media as, quote, a mystery illness, if you will. And eventually, the term Gulf War syndrome stuck. And there was a constellation of symptoms, mainly neurocognitive, you know, a lot of short-term and even long-term memory loss, motor coordination, skill issues, uh, tremendous fatigue being reported among a lot of these veterans. And so by that point, Chairman uh, Regal, Chairman Don Regal uh, of Michigan, who headed up the banking committee at the time, was looking at whether or not dual-use exports by the United States to Iraq in the 1980s may have contributed to their weapons of mass destruction program. And so he was looking essentially for links in that regard. My wife, Robin, was selected for the Women's Executive Leadership Program at the agency, which is one of these up and coming middle management potential type programs. Yeah, and we should mention, we should note, take a moment to note here, your wife also worked for the agency. Yes. That's, that is, and that is, that's an important fact here. Uh, she was critical essentially to kind of getting me involved in this whole thing. She went to the banking committee in, in late January of, of 1994. And after her first day on the job, she brought home the initial Senate banking committee staff level report, which was published on September 30th, 1993. And it was anecdotal in character. It had a lot of stories from veterans who reported chemical agents going off, and in some cases, things that actually look like symptoms. And the other thing that she told me uh, was that at the time, the office of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, then Colin Powell, had basically tried to squash the report. 
And so her attitude was, you know, look, read this report. I think we got gassed, meaning chemical agent exposures essentially among veterans. And so that report was was pretty compelling. She wound up uh, staying on the Hill. Initially, it was supposed to just be a 60-day rotation. She wound up staying up there almost the entire year, worked on both of the larger reports and contributed directly to those on the banking committee and staffed the hearing they did in May of 1994, at which senior Department of Defense officials flatly denied that anything had actually happened. In the meantime, while she was working this on the Hill, she would call me on a daily basis when I was working at the agency to give me tips about where I might want to look for information from from the uh, 1991 period. So I had started essentially my own totally unauthorized investigation into whether or not this had all happened because I just kept thinking back to the war and about all the alarms that were allegedly false. And for me, I, I reached the conclusion that either all the equipment we bought was garbage and we should get our money back from the manufacturers or some of this stuff really did happen. People were really exposed. So I did that between February and uh, July of 1994. My manager had no clue that I was doing this uh, and that was deliberate um, because I was well aware of, of what had happened to previous CIA whistleblowers who had, you know, tried to raise similar issues in previous conflicts. So I wanted to make sure that I had my ducks in a row. And I also wanted to make sure that I had a nice, big, thick documentary record that would also potentially be subject to the Freedom of Information Act. So that if anybody, you know, wanted to try to claim that none of this stuff existed, there would be a little bit of a problem there. So this is, this is a, a pretty long span of time here. This is from 1991 uh, when the U.S. Uh, pushed Iraq out of Kuwait and 1996 when uh, and so in your communications between between you and your wife and who did you reach out to uh, in order to assure that if you're going to do this, it is full throated and it is difficult for anyone uh, with reasoning capabilities to deny. Yeah. So I made several decisions, you know, at the beginning of this. Um, the first was to document everything I did. So I started putting together a memorandum for the record on on virtually every major action that I took, every major fine that I came across and so on and so forth. And to the extent that I could keep those unclassified, I did it again in order to make it much more difficult for the agency or any other component of the government whose information I might have been relying on to try to invoke a B-1 national security exemption under the Freedom of Information Act to prevent the information from getting out. The second thing I did was to essentially run what amounted to a de facto counterintelligence operation against my own government. I began recruiting sources within the Department of Defense, elsewhere in the intelligence community, the Department of Veterans Affairs, to help give me information to the maximum extent that they could about both ill veterans, but also where other pockets of information on this might exist. And there, it, it's interesting that you're, when reaching out to the Department of Defense, you would think that might be fertile ground for... Uh, people being willing to talk to you about this. This is a an issue that affected frontline uh, military personnel yeah. and uh, people who were in some ways being horribly mistreated by their own government and not making good on a promise in many ways to take care of them. As is the case with almost any large bureaucracy, and 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 we really kind of get a good glimpse of this uh, in Tom Mueller's latest book, Crisis of Conscience, Whistleblowing in an Age of Fraud, which was the subject of a, a book forum here at Cato on October 2nd, 2019 that I hosted. And the subject of a recent Cato Daily podcast. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Um, you know, Tom talks about 
kind of the reality of, of what it means to be a whistleblower. And, and you just generally find that most people inside of a large bureaucracy, even if they become witting of something really terrible going on, are extremely reluctant to come forward with it. And it usually comes down to a question of self-interest or from their perspective, survival, right? They, they don't want to be thrown under the bus, so to speak. They don't want to put their livelihood at risk. If they have children, you know, um, that's also something that, you know, it's totally legit to kind of take those things into consideration. So there were people in each of the um, agencies and departments of the federal government that I've, I've talked about so far who were willing to help me. There were not a huge number for exactly those reasons that I described, but some of the sources that I managed to recruit were at a very high level and they had really good access. And it gave me a tremendous amount of confidence as I went through that to know that, yeah, I'm pretty much right on the bullseye here. This is really going on. It is really happening. Uh, and there are plenty of people that are going along with it. And so we're going to have to ultimately do something about that. So in early 1996, what happens? You know, uh, from the time that I surfaced this whole investigation from my frontline manager in July of 1994, from that point forward, the agency really tried to contain us at, at one level or another. So, you know, my manager gave me the assurance that he would take this to the people that were so-called experts in chemical and biological warfare. We'd have them look at it. Anyway, we get to November 1994. My wife actually comes back to NPIC and bumps into somebody who says, oh, yeah, I was asked to debunk what you guys did. And that's how we knew that, you know, essentially the game was on, that they were not going to take us seriously. So I decided to kind of raise the ante. And I wrote a letter to the editor of the Washington Times, which, as some of our listeners may know, is a relatively conservative newspaper here in Washington. Uh, and the op-ed was published on December 7th, 1994, Pearl Harbor Day. And in that, I accused the Secretary of Defense and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff of engaging in a cover-up. Now, because I knew the law and agency regulations on all this stuff, I made sure not to identify myself as an agency employee, and I used no classified information. So from a strict legal standpoint, I was on, I was on great ground. From a cultural and an institutional standpoint, I had quite literally violated every taboo that you could possibly imagine. So were you frozen out at that point? I, I mean, were you prevented? It, it, it's interesting because it had, it had a couple of effects. For starters, three days before Christmas, my, my frontline manager called me in and, and basically asked me, did you write this? And I was in an extremely um, flippant mood. And I said, well, there's only one Pat Eddington in Fairfax County, Virginia that I know of. And the conversation kind of went downhill from there. But I, I made it clear that I knew exactly what he had done and not done to take us seriously. And by this point, of course, there had been even more press coverage of sick Gulf War veterans and all the rest of this. So it had really become a political thing by that point. What, what's notable, I mean, in you telling this story, it seems like this is the kind of thing that the CIA would desperately want to know and be able to validate and be able to take appropriate action and inform members of Congress about and say, these things happened. Yeah, they should. Unfortunately, the agency has a history of often going along with the flow of policy. And a former senior agency official, um, Hal Ford, has actually written, you know, on this tension that a lot of intelligence officers feel, whereby if you tell the truth and it's not what the president wants to hear, you wind up potentially getting shut out. 
Uh, if you go along with the flow, you stay at the table, but things will still probably, you know, go down the toilet. And of course, that's exactly what happened in Vietnam. And I was conscious of that of that whole uh, controversy from the Vietnam War. You know, General Westmoreland essentially lied about the, the total number of Viet Cong that we were facing in the field in Vietnam. One of my predecessors, Samuel Alexander Adams, did everything he could internally to try to surface it. When that was unsuccessful, um, you know, he ultimately made the decision to go public, which ultimately led to the CBS versus Westmoreland lawsuit, which would be actually a great topic for another podcast. But in any event, he was my... He was my inspiration and my guide, even though he had died several years earlier. He had written a book that had been published after his death by Steerforth Press called War of Numbers, which to this day is one of the greatest books on intelligence that's ever been written. So I knew that it was unlikely, given that official agency assessments had said no chemical weapons were deployed to theater, nothing was detected. We were going directly against the grain saying, no, y'all kind of tank that. Um, <laughs> it really did happen. And you're going to have to, you know, address this one way or the other. Otherwise, you know, the agency is just going along with DOD. And then what's the purpose of having a CIA? So by early 1996, uh, all that internal stuff had run its course. They were not going to change their minds. They were not going to go in a different direction. And in the meantime, in, uh, in that same period, I'd taken 100 classified documents, you know, up to the Senate Intelligence Committee and tried to get them to engage on it. Instead of taking us seriously, they had simply, I found out later, called back to the agency and said, did you know when your people came up here with 100 documents, you know, not in a, in a proper bag and so on and so forth. Um, so by that point, they had a counterintelligence investigation underway uh, against me. We knew that because a lot of our friends were getting called. And, and the question usually was something along the lines of, do you think that, that Pat Eddington would let his conscience override his secrecy agreement? And... That that question says so much about the mentality of the institution, right? It, it's it's not that the truth matters; it's that protecting the institution matters. And so it was really clear to us that we were going to have to leave. And so we, you know, I put together a plan to get my wife out first, and we got her out first in May of 1996. And then I spent the rest of the time basically in a, in a backwater element at NPIC. Um, putting together what would become my first book, Gast in the Gulf. And then we went very public with the New York Times on October 30th, 1996. So uh, what was the reaction? And what what was your, I guess, sense at that point once this had gone public in late in the New York, late in uh, 1996, that, uh, that of what your life was going to look like from then on? Well, I knew what had happened to Ellsberg, of course, and, and I knew what had, had happened to Sam Adams, and, and I knew what had happened to other whistleblowers along the way. So I knew we were going to have uh, a rough ride. You know, I knew it was possible that we would lose the house. We did. Um, I knew it would be possible that I would wind up having to, you know, try to rebuild a, a professional life and career, probably not directly in the field that I'd been working in, and that's exactly how it all transpired. I was more fortunate, we were more fortunate in that the veterans community just embraced us wholeheartedly. You know, the whole, and it wasn't just Desert Storm veterans, it was Vietnam era veterans uh, as well who really embraced us. And uh, it was folks in that community that really helped me, you know, kind of get my career back on track. When your wife was at the Senate Banking Committee mm -hmm. feeding you questions, mm -hmm. essentially, look into this, look mm -hmm. into this, answer this question. Mm -hmm. um, it looks, sounds to me like you were spared having to go to your wife and say, honey, 
our lives could get much, much worse here. This seems like something that you all were probably dimly aware of at first, but then keenly aware of as things move forward that this is important. And you guys seemed like the two of you were really on the same page the whole way through. Is that right? And it, it is true. And now I will say that, and those who know me well uh, know this about me, I'm an extremely interdirected person, which means I'm pretty much impervious to what other people think of me. <laughs> and so that, that gives me a freedom, essentially. And you find this, so this is what Tom Muller found in the course of doing his book. A lot of whistleblowers are very much that way. They're very interdirected. Um, and I think I may be even more at the extreme end of that in some respects. My wife knew what we were getting into, but I think she was always more afraid, you know, of what could potentially happen. And the one bit of solace I was always able to give her was, trust me, they're they're much more afraid of us than we are of them. And and that was absolutely true. And we and we were able to see that very vividly once we engaged in Freedom of Information Act lawsuits to get a glimpse into how they were reacting to us as we were doing all of this. Um, so. But yeah, I mean, if you go through something like this, you will always look at your life in before and after phases. And you simply have to understand that when you're going into it. But, you know, I come from a family of citizen soldiers. And what I saw happen was intolerable to me. There was no way that I would have been able to live with myself if I had just simply done nothing. Couldn't do that. So uh, we'll get back to some final thoughts, but tell me about the Intelligence Community Whistleblower Protection Act. So this was actually passed about two years after we went public with our allegations, and it created a framework that was designed to try to make it possible for people to do what we did, but within a specific set of channels. The, the real problem with the act ultimately is that it still forces the potential whistleblower, and initially the act applied pretty much to the CIA. You had to go through the, the CIA IG before you, the inspector general, before you could then turn around and potentially go to Congress. That still creates a gatekeeper situation, right? Because almost everybody who, who winds up working at an agency or department IG, most of them are rotationals. They come from elsewhere within that given agency or department. Well, are you really going to want to open an investigation on people in your own department when you have to rotate back to that after your assignment is over? No. So it, it creates a real conflict of interest in that respect. And so with respect to the IG, if you were to bring claims to the inspector general, well, in order to vet your claim, they have to make some calls themselves. Yes. And any documentary evidence you would have, you would need to turn over and, and so on and so forth. So, But I mean, in terms of uh, raising red flags among your colleagues, mm -hmm. that seems like it's going to happen. The only way that it wouldn't happen is if they could give you a 100% ironclad guarantee of anonymity, which of course they cannot do. There, there's no way to do that. So, you know, my view has always been that the Inspector General Act of 1978, which was one of the post-Watergate, post-Church Committee era reforms, was designed to try to prevent these kinds of things from happening to begin with. The problem is a lot of these inspectors general wind up being organizationally captured by the agencies or departments they are actually designed to oversee. And that's why I'm of the opinion that it's much better to let the Government Accountability Office, Congress's watchdog, 
go in and do this kind of work. Right now, GAO is largely prohibited uh, because of the CIA Act of 1949 and some related statutes from doing the kind of work I think they should be doing in federal departments and agencies that deal with national security. So that's another one of those reforms that really needs to happen. So what else, uh, what other reforms do you specifically point to as being uh, that would empower whistleblowers, provide, afford them protections, but also in general, just sort of prevent these kinds of cover. I mean, the ideal situation is one, we don't have any more whistleblowers right. because uh, the agency knows that any whistleblower in their organization would be really well protected if they brought these claims mm -hmm. uh, into the light and therefore they're going to behave in a, in a more proper way. Exactly. So, so what reforms, what other reforms do you see? So I, I think what you need to do to begin with is actually repeal the Intelligence Community Whistleblower Protection Act in its current form and simply allow whistleblowers to go to any, you know, go to their member of Congress uh, and report any concern they have about waste, fraud, abuse, criminal conduct. Every office on the Hill, House and Senate ought to have a staffer who can assist the member in doing that, uh, regardless of the classification level. And at the same time, I think you need to have statutory penalties in place that really send a strong deterrent message to folks. You know, my personal preference is a mandatory minimum of 10 years and a $1 million fine for any official of the government who retaliates against a whistleblower. If you raise it to that kind of level, uh, if managers know potentially that they're going to be exposed to that level of risk, they're going to think twice or three times before they actually go after somebody. So I think it would help. I want to make it clear though, and I think libertarians generally have a better understanding of this than most people. You can pass whatever law you want to, right? But if you don't have members of Congress who are willing to act and be engaged and do what needs to be done. Perform to, oversight, if you will. That is exactly what needs to happen in every one of these cases. It requires continuous engagement. It cannot be a part-time job. It cannot be an occasional activity. It has to be the absolute focus, really, of every member there. So while passing the kinds of changes in law that I'm suggesting, I think would, would definitely help. As Locke Johnson, a former staffer on the church committee, once very wryly observed to me, there is no substitute for member engagement. And I think that's what we have to have when it comes to whistleblower protection to make it truly effective. So uh, looking back on your experience and whistleblowers since, um, thinking of Thomas Drake, uh, Edward Snowden, Chelsea Manning, uh, people like that, um, what does their experience do to the case for uh, making changes to uh, the whistleblower statutes and things like that? I think one of the key lessons really to kind of draw from whistleblowing generally from 1971 up to the present is that when the government is in a position to use the classification system, to misuse it, to hide waste, fraud, abuse, or even criminal conduct, until that is pierced, until that itself is made illegal, which it isn't right now. There is no statute that says you cannot use the classification system to conceal waste, fraud, abuse, and criminal conduct. There is an executive order, Executive Order 13526, uh, which governs you know, the classification system generally. But executive orders are ignored all the time. And, and that certainly has been the case uh, with Snowden. It's been the case with Manning. You know, I mean, Manning's revelations involved war crimes committed by American military personnel that were classified secret, right? And, and so I think that is the other part of this that has to change. We have to stop treating the classification system like it's some kind of holy writ 
and understand that people have and will continue, unless they are deterred from doing so, to use the classification system to conceal waste, fraud, abuse, and criminal conduct. That has to be stopped. Patrick Eddington is a policy analyst at the Cato Institute. His memoir is entitled Long Strange Journey. Subscribe to this podcast and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 